0: Monica Watkins, co-founder of our anti-trafficking organization, Beauty for Freedom, and co-host of Breaking Distance, our podcast with the mission to connect communities while igniting change.
1: And I'm Raj Shah, your co-host for this episode of Breaking Distance.
0: I wanted to start out this episode with a disclaimer. We'll be speaking about rape and rape culture on today's podcast, and it could be triggering for some listeners, so please be advised. One in five women and one in four men, which equates to 25.5 million women and 7.9 million men experience sexual violence during their lifetime, although data on sexual violence against men is underreported. Most individuals who experience sexual violence report the offender was someone they knew, almost half, which is 46.7% of women who have experienced sexual violence report the offender was an acquaintance, while the other half, 45.4%, report the offender was an intimate partner. 12% of female victims and 26% of male victims report the sexual violence occurred before the age of 10. These are all statistics provided by the CDC and they're available on Safe Horizon's website.
1: With us today, we have three really incredible people, Jimmy Marr, Policy Director at Safe Horizon, Lisa Alexander, Senior Staff Attorney with Day One, and Lorraine Correa, Counselor Advocate at the Violence Intervention Program.
0: First, I'd like to introduce Jimmy Marr. He is a Policy Director at Safe Horizon, and Safe Horizon is an organization that is the nation's leading victim assistance organization was founded in 1978. Their mission is to provide support, prevent violence, and promote justice for victims of crime and abuse, their families and communities. Jimmy, thank you so much for, uh, you know, being a part of this podcast today and all the amazing work that you're doing with the Denim Day Alliance.
2: Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having, um, having us today. Um, so my name is Jimmy Marr. My pronouns are he, him, his, and I'm policy director at Safe Horizon. I've been with Safe Horizon in different capacities since 2008, um, but joined our government affairs office a few years ago. Safe Horizon, we're the largest nonprofit victim services organization in the country. Uh, we help more than 250,000 children, adults, and families affected by violence and abuse throughout New York City every year. We provide safety planning, support, information, advocacy, and other essential services to victims and survivors of um, all forms of violence and abuse including domestic and intimate partner violence, child abuse, labor and sex trafficking, stalking, youth homelessness, violence in the community, um, and of course rape, sexual assault, and other forms of sexual violence. Uh, But these forms of violence, of course, aren't mutually exclusive. They're all interconnected. Uh, We can't talk about domestic and intimate partner violence or child abuse or elder abuse or trafficking without also talking about sexual violence. But I did just want to uplift the work that Safe Horizons is doing specifically at our community programs. So all of our programs, to some extent, offer supports to survivors of sexual violence. But our community programs are really doing a lot of work providing counseling and advocacy to survivors. Two of my colleagues who are actually actually members of our denim day NYC coalition, Shimmy and Megan, they're specifically tasked with supporting colleges and universities and college student survivors. So they provide two main services to campuses and survivors. The first is sexual violence prevention programming on college campuses. So they host many different workshops and events that raise awareness about sexual assault, dating violence, stalking. They discuss affirmative consent, they conduct bystander intervention trainings on campuses. And they also support faculty and staff on implementing trauma-informed practices in their response to sexual violence. And the second service that they provide is trauma-focused counseling for student survivors of sexual assault, for childhood sexual abuse, and for dating or domestic violence. So Shimmy and Megan often get referrals directly from campuses they work with and from our own community programs helpline. And lastly, they can also help advocate for student survivors who are navigating Title IX investigations on on campuses. So that's a little bit of the work that Safe Horizon does around sexual violence. But I'm I'm happy to have some of my colleagues from our Denim Day NYC coalition here with me today. So first, I'm going to turn it over to Lisa from Day One to talk about the work that uh, she and her team are doing.
3: Great. Thanks, Jimmy. So as Jimmy said, I work for Day One, which is an agency in New York City that is dedicated to assisting survivors of dating, and domestic violence who are aged 24 and under. Within day one, we have several different programs that kind of offer an array of services to survivors. We have social services and counseling, and we have a community education program, which offers trainings for adults and youth so that they're able to better respond to dating violence, and domestic sex trafficking. We also have the Elementary Prevention Initiative for Children, or EPIC, which is a new collaboration that's working on developing materials for educators designed for fourth and fifth graders to talk about healthy friendships that are meeting the national standards. And then two of the programs that I love so much, one is the Relationship Abuse Prevention Program, also known as RAP, and they partner with several New York City high schools. And Each school has a day one RAP coordinator who's a licensed social worker, and they offer things like group counseling, in-class workshops about dating, abuse, and other issues, staff, professional development, and community outreach and training. And we also have an early RAP program, which is very similar to the RAP program, except it's geared toward middle school students, and each coordinator works with a larger group of students. It's not as much in-house. We also have the Youth Voices Network, which is a survivor-led leadership program. And then we have the legal department, which I am a part of. I'm a senior staff attorney with Day One, and we offer several services to survivors of dating and domestic violence, predominantly representation and advice and counseling for family court matters. So things like orders of protection, custody, visitation, and support. We also do some immigration work, and then we do a lot of consultations. Even if we can't take on a full loan case, we'll still give some folks advice and counsel as to what their rights and options are.
0: Thank you so much, Lisa. Lorraine, can you come on and speak a bit about the amazing work that the Violence Intervention Program is doing, particularly in the Latinx community with survivors of violence?
4: Yes, um, thank you so much. So my name is Lorraine Correa. I work with the Violence Intervention Program, um, also known as VIP. It's a agency based here in New York City. It is a Latina-led organization We provide healing and counseling services, housing, advocacy, and economic justice to thousands of survivors of domestic and sexual violence in New York City each year. We are community-based, and we work primarily with low-income and the Latinx and immigrant communities, so we are very deeply rooted in providing culturally specific services to the Latinx community, but of course, we see clients of all demographics, all races. I specifically work with the Sexual Violence Project. We provide a safe space for clients where they can process the trauma of sexual assault. We use a trauma-informed group approach. So we have support groups where survivors of both sexual and domestic violence come together. And we discuss the influence of society and culture and how it's connected to gender-based violence. We have conversations on how to demystify sexual violence, and we really work towards the goals of healing growth and developing healing modalities for these survivors of sexual assault. We also incorporate community engagement and activism in order to empower these clients. And also a lot of the clients that we have as part of their healing process, we have a program called the Promotora, which basically is when clients feel like they're ready and they're ready to sort of give back and become activists themselves. We also work with the clients to empower them to become activists in the community. So they themselves in the communities also provide workshops and work with other people in the community to sort of keep bringing awareness to the topic of sexual violence and sexual assault. We have other programs such as the domestic violence shelters. We have an economic justice program, which provides survivors with information on ways to become more financially independent, to become their own entrepreneurs. And we also have healing and counseling services at three different boroughs here in New York City as well.
1: That's incredible. Thank you so much. My initial question is for Lisa. How, how do did, how did people get access to, th- like, discrete access to therapy with your programs?
3: So we have a hotline and a text line. So folks can reach out to us via one of those ways, and it's a confidential service. So they can connect with someone with our organization who can schedule an appointment for them to come in. And obviously now with everything that's happening with COVID, we are still working remote and I know that our counselors are still offering some services over the phone. There's also an application or form that people can fill out on our website to request those services. And again, it's all confidential.
1: That's incredible. Thank you.
3: I
0: want to bring Jimmy into the conversation because you have been leading or one of the lead voices of the Denim Day NYC coalition. Can you speak to the work that y'all have done uh, in the coalition and the work that you're doing this year specifically with the COVID crisis and the online rally?
2: First thing is, I mean, Denim Day NYC is a coalition of many different organizations. One of our main goals as a coalition is to just uplift the work of our member organizations. Our member organizations are really doing a lot of individual uh, case management, crisis counseling, advocacy. A lot of our work as a coalition has been around event planning really, um, and to to pull together uh, survivors, advocates, allies, uh, government leaders to our rally Uh, to just speak out against sexual violence, to raise awareness about the myths around rape and sexual assault. Specifically, Denim Day is because of something that happened in Italy in the 90s. So in 1992 in Italy, a young woman, an 18-year-old woman, was raped by her driving instructor. After some time, he was convicted, he was sentenced to jail. But years later, he appealed his conviction, alleging that everything had been consensual. And the Italian Supreme Court of Appeals overturned the rape conviction, arguing that because the survivor had been wearing tight jeans, she must have helped remove them, thereby giving her consent. And that rightly upset a lot of people. The women in the Italian parliament were outraged at what became known as the denim defense or the jeans alibi. So many of them started coming to parliament wearing jeans in a sign of protest and also in a sign of solidarity with the survivor. And that jeans strike was covered by the news, by the media, internationally. In California, legislators there saw this as a moment to really join forces. So they showed up to the steps of the California Capitol wearing jeans again, as an act of solidarity. Peace Over Violence actually organized the first Denim Day in Los Angeles in 1999. And since then, it's grown. It's grown into a national movement, an international movement. Denim Day NYC, we started 10 years ago. So this is actually our 10-year anniversary. And we really want to make these events survivor-centered. We want to hear from survivors so that folks can really hear the voices of people who have experienced violence in, in many different forms. And from advocates who have been doing this work for a really, really long time. Last year, our campaign was The Future Is. We just wanted a forward-thinking, inspiring campaign theme. It was really about, tell us what a future-free of sexual violence looks like. What does it feel like? And this year, the next step in that would be a violence-free future needs. Telling us, okay, so we have this idea of the future and what it looks like. How do we get there? What do we need to build that future? We were super excited, we were planning this rally, but of course, due to the pandemic, we pivoted to a virtual rally. So that's what we're doing this year, encouraging folks to join our campaign by going to our website, denimday.nyc, taking the 2020 pledge. You'll be committing to engaging in conversations, real conversations around sexual violence with with your friends, your family, your, your colleagues, your loved ones, but then also telling us how do we build that future? One silver lining to this awful, awful pandemic that we're living through right now is the fact that some of these events are becoming a little bit more accessible. Like our rally, it's, it's typically on a Wednesday afternoon. So folks have to come into Manhattan and we, we love having people there, but we think that we might actually have more people involved this year than we have in years past. We're talking with folks in Los Angeles to see if we could partner on an event. Um, so that's, that's what we're really focusing on right now.
0: That's so great. It's definitely unfortunate that we're in this crisis, but the communities that are connecting because there's no alternative, that's actually a really positive thing. Um, I wanted to ask Lorraine and Lisa, the members of the Denim Day NYC Coalition, what are some programs that y'all have collaborated on together organizationally?
4: Um, Sure. I just started at VIP in November, but I do know that VIP has been active partners and supporters of Denim Day and have been members of the committee for many years. Um, so some of the things that we have been working on in collaborating is we have been having the Denim Day meetings weekly and we sort of piggyback ideas off one one another. Also trying to come up with videos with the hashtag a um, violence Free future needs sharing a lot of social media content?
3: Yeah, I would echo everything that Lorraine said. We are also long-term partners of the Denim Day Coalition. I know that we're amplifying not only the message of Denim Day, but also um, messaging surrounding Sexual Assault Awareness Month on our social media channels. And within the legal department, we are on numerous coalitions to address domestic violence. And as I believe Jimmy mentioned before, you can't really talk about domestic or dating violence without talking about sexual violence because things like sexual assault, revenge, pornography, and all of those types of things are family offenses and can require an order of protection or police intervention or things of that nature. I myself am co-chair of the Lawyers Committee Against Domestic Violence. Right now, our main focus has been on everything that's happening with the virtual parts and how to make sure that clients have access to getting orders of protection and information that they need to stay safe during this time.
2: Yeah, and just to to echo everything that uh, Lorraine and Lisa said. I mean, the the anti-violence community here in New York City, we, there are so many organizations doing this work, and none of us can do this work alone. We all have our blind spots. We all like have certain things that we do really great, certain things where we can grow. Organizations like mine, Safe Horizon, we rely on day one um, to help guide our work with young people, and we rely on VIP working with Latinx communities. I am deeply inspired by by all of the work that every organization is really doing. In a previous role, I oversaw the Domestic Violence and Empowerment Initiative, which is an initiative of City Council to allocate funds to different nonprofits across the city. And there are over 100 organizations that receive that funding through, from City Council. A Safe Horizon, we administer the contract for the city. So Day One is one of the organizations, and VIP is another one of those organizations. What we really try to do, I think as a community, is really to partner with each other in various coalitions, and also to refer to one another's programs, especially when working with like a a survivor with like maybe some specific needs and thinking like, oh, I know VIP would be really good. And we work side by side in so many different programs, including at the city's family justice centers. I think that we're always just working collaboratively while we're also still doing our individual work, our outreach work, our education work, our prevention work, our direct services work, but knowing what everybody else is doing so that we can rely on one another.
3: Yeah, Jimmy, I'm so glad you mentioned the Family Justice Centers for folks who don't know that FJCs are in each of the five boroughs in New York City, and they like to describe themselves, I think, as like a one-stop shop. So it's a walk-in center. They're open outside of COVID times, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Now they're still operating hotlines, so folks can still call to be screened for services during those same hours. People can get connected to case management services, counseling services, legal services. There are domestic violence officers there who are able to take police reports and assist. We work with the DA's office, who oftentimes is on the same floor or at least nearby, to try to build those partnerships. So as Jimmy mentioned, we try to have a very collaborative approach because that's the best way to assist survivors. As he mentioned, not all of us can do everything. It is impossible just on a time management perspective as well as a grants perspective. And so it takes all of us to be able to give the best services that we can to survivors. And one of the reasons that I'm so happy that we're pivoting to a virtual rally this year is because not only can people who might not be able to make uh, the normal in-person rally attend, but people outside of New York City in areas geographically who may not have the same breadth of services that New York is lucky to have can also see this information and access it and know that they're not alone and get some tips and some resources and ideally get connected to someone who could potentially put them in touch with an organization closer to them.
4: Yeah, I'm. thank you so much for mentioning that, Lisa, because it's very true. A lot of people now are on their phones more, are online more, so this virtual rally is a really good opportunity and it is like the silver lining where more people are getting involved more people are sort of following the movement and also Jimmy I wanted to thank you for sort of addressing the Latinx community that we do work with because we do take a lot of pride in raising the visibility of you know Latino and Latino and Latinx survivors and you know making sure that their stories are getting told too we know that in the Latin culture there's different cultures there's so many countries there's different languages different stories Um, we also take a lot of pride in expanding who is included. And when it it comes to talking about like inclusivity, we also want to mention that all survivors are, you know, should be heard, including trans Latinas, including sex workers, you know, all of our survivors, all of these survivors do deserve the same kind of rights and the same kind of recognition. So we are very ingrained in this work as well.
0: Thank you so much for that input. I, I really love how all of the organizations really support one another and support one another's success. There's been such a sharp uptick of domestic violence and uh, intimate partner violence during the COVID crisis. I wanted to see how each one of your organizations has been addressing that issue.
4: Um, Well, I can speak for, for VIP. Um, There has been an actual increase in our calls to the domestic violence shelter. So it is something that has been obviously very challenging and difficult navigate. A lot of our case managers and counselor advocates are checking in more often with their clients, trying to safety plan as much as possible. Sometimes they even try to use, you know, if they know it's not safe to call them, texting them or VIP also has a chat feature on our website. I think at this point, sometimes when a survivor is living with their abuser, sometimes it takes a little bit of creativity in how to safety plan with them. Especially knowing that if they are quarantined with their abuser, sometimes they they might not even have telephone or technology access, or if they do have technology access, the abuser might be able to monitor their behavior online more often. So I know sometimes they try to use like code words. I've heard of other colleagues or other um, professionals sometimes will call and say things like, "Oh, like I'm a pharmacist, I'm calling to check in on your prescription." what's so it's really all about you know safety planning with them and making sure that they try to ensure their safety as much as possible. I also have. Maybe like sort of a suggestion when it comes to us on an individual level, even if you are maybe like a bystander or you know that maybe you have a neighbor or someone that's in an abusive situation, our hotline and of course Safe Horizons hotline and the other domestic violence hotlines are also available for people to call just for resources and tips even if they are not the survivor as well. So that person can always call and ask for some advice on how to navigate that. Because we do know that sometimes calling the police is not the safest option for the survivor. So sometimes it is best to maybe check in with a domestic violence hotline if you think it is safe in order to get those resources and those tips if you are maybe a bystander.
1: I just want to dig into safety planning uh, a little more. As a, let's say uh, I'm a recent victim of abuse, of violence, what steps do I take? I call the hotline, I get put in touch with someone, calling 911 isn't safe. What are my options?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. So it really depends on the client's safety. When individuals call that hotline, it is sometimes in order to be linked to a shelter. They sort of go through the steps of getting to that place with the client, whether it's to try and maybe have like a bag on the side to pack and be ready to go. Um, it is case by case. Also, sometimes if the survivor is quarantined with the abuser and there is no way for them to leave, they also try to safety plan with them just what they can do inside of the home, whether it's maybe a certain room that they can go to, where they're safe or avoiding areas of the house that maybe are not safe nice, that may have like sharp objects, like for example, the kitchen, um, So again, it's really about sort of getting creative and trying to safety plan, not only um, if they were to leave, because sometimes it's not an option and sometimes survivors have to stay, but just ways to stay safe inside of the home.
3: Yeah, I would echo everything that Lorraine said and also some of the safety planning, especially for younger clients who may not be quarantined with their abusers, but are certainly on their phones now more, at least the same than they were before this crisis. They may be experiencing threats for like revenge pornography or harassing text messages or people who have pressured them to giving their passwords to their social media accounts or things of that nature. So we'd like to walk through making sure that their tech safety is up to date as well. So There's a program through the FJCs and Cornell Tech who are still running basically security checks for clients to the best of their abilities. It's more limited now that it's remote than it could be at the family justice centers. But if clients suspect that there's some sort of tracking device or spyware or other issues that the abusers put on their phone, then they ideally can get at least a consultation to resolve some of those issues.
1: Absolutely incredible. This quarantine is absolutely surreal in that these domestic violence survivors and um, abuse victims are, are, are now trapped inside their homes. And if their only recourse is to go to a room without sharp objects, and and I also am curious to dig into a little more about the social media accounts like why why change passwords i understand about location tracking but what kind of other threats can they face on social media do they fear blowback from their uh, friends and family is that is that what we're getting into here
3: So they can fear that. Um, And there's been cases we've had where clients abusers have accessed their social media accounts and started removing their friends or family members or sending threatening or abusive messages out to their contacts. They've hacked into their social media accounts and posted intimate images or embarrassing photos of the clients on their own social media accounts so that it's been sent out to their friends and family. Um, So things along that nature when we're talking about social media accounts. But revenge pornography obviously is an issue, regardless of whether or not you have social media. If someone has an intimate image of you, um, if and they don't, they're not respectful of um, keeping that private, and they don't have the other person's consent to share that. They can still send it to their family or their friends, post it on their own social media account, post it on random websites. We've done takedown notices uh, to several different companies in the past, social media accounts as well as other. Um, websites uh, to try to remove those images that abusers have posted of clients. To your point about this being a, like a more dangerous time for clients because of the quarantine, I think to an extent that is very true. But it also amplifies a lot of issues that were in place even before this pandemic occurred. The fact that there is not adequate affordable housing, the fact that there are issues and time delays in getting into that affordable housing, the fact that there are some safety concerns and also some shortages in terms of some shelters within New York City. There are areas of the country that barely even have shelter at all. For clients who may have pets, there's only one pet-friendly shelter agency in New York City. In other parts of the state and the country, that isn't even an option, employment and underemployment, and financial control and abuse has always been an issue. It's just been exacerbated by the unemployment crisis that's currently plaguing the country. So these are factors that were in place before the pandemic. They've been exacerbated and brought more to light, but they've always existed. And folks who do this work and survivors have always known that these are barriers to leaving.
1: Yeah, you, you, that's that's certainly something that that becomes a major factor if you're financially dependent upon your abuser, then taking. Taking the abuser out of the equation equals taking your financial support out of the equation, and then you're homeless.
3: Right. And I mean, right now it's actually worse because normally, at least in certain circumstances, folks can file for a child or spousal support, spousal support being if they were married. But right now, the courts aren't even hearing those cases. And so they're having to rely on benefits that they can get on their own. And if they're not eligible for whatever reason or they're not able to apply because they are quarantining with an abuser, then and that's another route that's been cut off to them.
1: And the attorneys in your organization, you work directly with the clients? Yes. I see. I see.
3: In normal times, we'll represent folks in court. So if they have court appearances or trials or whatever the case, we'll go into court with them and represent them. We'll give them advice and draft all the documents necessary. Right now, there are only five parts in family court open in all of New York City. There's normally, I think, maybe 100 judges between the five boroughs. Down there, I believe, are five. So they've had to reduce the number of services available to victims of domestic violence somewhat dramatically. Um, And it's really limited to emergency situations. So initial filings for temporary orders of protection and ideally emergency situations pertaining to custody and visitation. All the support cases and all the non-essential issues of custody and visitation any real new filing of custody and visitation is all being put on pause until they can either reopen fully or at least get additional capacity to hear those cases going forward.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I understand that victims can feel awful alone in this. Have you seen family members, when the victim actually speaks out, kind of rally around them and offer support, join them in in the fight, attend court hearings with them? Is that common?
3: I think it's less common than would be ideal. But unfortunately, domestic and dating violence still has a lot of stigma around it, and there's still a lot of misconceptions and things of that nature. Sometimes people are not as supportive. There can be some victim blaming and things of that nature that go on. And so unfortunately, it does depend. Oh,
1: that's terrible. Victim blaming.
3: I have one
0: question and I kind of wanted to pivot a little bit. I wanted to kind of see if there was an organization within this group of organizations of the Denim Day uh, NYC Coalition that specifically tailors programming around the LGBTQ plus community. Because I think that's a community of, of members who are often more marginalized and uh, more vulnerable than other communities.
2: So New York City Anti-Violence Project, they've been a member of our coalition in the past and we rely on them all the time as an advocacy community. So the Anti-Violence Project, uh, AVP, they work to address violence that is happening from outside the community towards queer and trans folks from people from outside the communities. Um, like thinking about hate violence bias crimes, things like that. But then they also work within the community as well. So they are working uh, with survivors of intimate partner violence, uh, dating violence, uh, and sexual violence. And they are one of the key experts. Uh, And that's not to say like our organizations aren't equipped to work with queer and trans clients as well. But AVP is like one one of the, the great organizations specifically doing that work.
0: Thank you so much, Jimmy. I really appreciate that. We have a lot of our extended Beauty for Freedom family that is a part a part of the queer uh, and trans communities and they oftentimes have these questions of you know um how what are the programs that are in place specifically to support our community you know yeah
2: yeah, and I mean, um, I mean, even just speaking for Safe Horizon, so one of our projects, uh, street work project, uh, which is our project, our, our program that works with runaway and homeless youth, um, a lot of the clients that they're working with, the young people that they're working with, are queer, um, or trans, or gender uh, gender nonconforming, nonbinary. Um, and just thinking about like how uh, homophobia, transphobia, biphobia. Um, and xenophobia are connected also to homelessness um, and reasons why a lot of times young people are homeless.
0: Yes. I also had one other question. I know it's just a tad bit off topic, but I uh, sat in on a webinar uh, yesterday uh, about uh, the demand and supply of the human trafficking industry right now. And actually, believe it or not, the numbers have gone drastically down, but that doesn't mean that the demand really has gone down. Um, can uh, can you guys answer or or you know sort of like tell us uh, anything about um, the world or the the uh, that the the fight to end human trafficking that's going on right now? Uh, if you're seeing any trends or any things that are happening that specifically because of the
3: COVID crisis, it's a really great question. That is a really good
0: question.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, I guess it's a tricky question just because, like, we know that all of these forms of violence are still happening. Um, trafficking, I, like intimate partner violence, sexual violence, child abuse, all of these forms of violence are happening. Um, but it's because people are stuck in their homes um, and not really, like, they're, there's less chance for people to reach out for help or for people to even think like, hmm, something seems off here. Um, just even speaking about child abuse, I mean, kids aren't in school. Um, kids aren't in after school programs. There are fewer eyes on kids. So just in terms of like even spotting like if there are bruises or broken arms. Um, so we we also see a drastic decline in the number of calls to the state central register. Um, but we know that child abuse is still happening. Um, so I think trafficking, we know it's still happening. I, I guess it's still too early. At Safe Horizon, our anti-trafficking program, A- ATP, um, they're still providing critical supports to to survivors. I think especially the survivors that they had already been working with. I think we're still just like taking this day by day, week to week.
3: Yeah. And in addition to the lack of eyes on children through schools and things of that nature, there's also folks who are not going to the ER or to the regular doctor's appointments because of the COVID crisis. And so people who might be reporting some form of trafficking or other exploitation or abuse might not be accessing services or being viewed that way. I don't know whether or not it's actually gone down. My sense is possibly, right? Because people are not supposed to be out and about as much as they are. And it is harder to get around um, and it is less safe. Um, I can't imagine that it's eliminated. I'm sure that it's still happening. It's just really a question of how much, not if. And my sense is also that there probably is an increase in online exploitation. Um, If you look at things like Zoom bombing uh, and other new ways that people have found to disseminate intimate images and things of that nature, people are very creative when it comes to um, being harmful and abusive. So I'm sure that there are other methods that people are utilizing
1: i I heard about Zoom bombing. yeah, uh, that's 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 where that's where someone jumps into a group Zoom chat and shares explicit
3: photos. Yeah. Is that? Is yeah, that... explicit photos or pornography. There's also been messages of hate, hate crimes and racist types of things. But people were doing that even before Zoom became popular. You can airdrop images to someone without even really knowing them, and people will airdrop images of their genitals or things of that nature to complete strangers. And so again, it's something that has been an ongoing issue. Uh, it's just amplified given the crisis that we we found ourselves in
1: yeah
2: and i i'll add another thing that i think we've heard sexual activities are still happening but like mostly like through like phones and computers so just like even cam girls like pe- like sex workers online we've seen exploitation yeah. so like people that are paying themselves like being recorded um and then the person on the other line uh, the other side of things saying like okay well now i have like these these images of you i have a picture of your face i have like this video of you and now like you need to like exploiting them for for money uh saying like if you don't pay up we're going to release uh release these videos these pictures of you i mean one thing that that i think think we we forgot to to bring up is that these forms of violence a lot of it is about power and control right and right now Mm -hmm. we are collectively we are collectively feeling powerless that's especially true for survivors and victims and it's it's still it's true also of people who are causing harm to other people they're feeling a loss of power control in their lives Um, and sometimes what we see is then people taking it out on the people around them
3: yeah, definitely. And the factors that we were talking about before that were impacting survivors, such as job loss and things of that nature, those also can be a traumat- uh, an exacerbating factor in terms of abuse. I believe that um, if a partner has recently lost their job is something that they consider in the lethality factor screening.
4: And I also actually wanted to add is that also, even for a survivor that isn't no longer in the abusive relationship, even if they are home and are not in physical danger. This whole idea of, you know, stay at home quarantine, that in itself can also bring up a lot of re-traumatization for survivors because it brings back a lot of feelings of isolation. And we know that that is one of the main tactics that abusers use is isolating the survivor, cutting off their support system. So We also have to think about their emotional well-being, especially talking about things like mental health, that this can be very triggering for survivors as well, especially um, ones that are not in the abusive relationship anymore, but are still experiencing reactions to the trauma that they they went through.
3: Right. And if you're quarantined in a house where you were abused, even if you're not with that abuser, that can be pretty traumatic and Mm re-traumatizing. Right.
4: Definitely. Yeah.
0: I wanted to get final thoughts from everyone. And, and again, I wanted to say, thank you all so much. This has been so educational and informative and I'm, I'm really excited for our network and beyond to kind of receive this message because I think we all need it right now. Um, but can, can you give me final thoughts, even just personal thoughts on what you feel a violence-free future needs?
3: Ooh, how much time do you have? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I could go on forever.
1: Get them. <laughs> Don't hold back.
3: So I think uh, there's so many things, right? I mean, we need access to services for survivors. Um, we need better uh, social supports in place. Um, and we need, oh my goodness, we need... Better housing. We need better employment access and training. We need better immigration policies um, that can, you know, empower people to come forward with those claims. We need an end to toxic masculinity. There's a lot of that that is still very prevalent in our culture. Um, As Jimmy mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, Denim Day originated because of the case where a judge said because a woman was wearing jeans, or she couldn't have been raped. But even today, across the country, even in I. In New York, there are still people who say, "Well, what were you wearing when you were assaulted, or when someone was sexually harassing you? Um, what were you, what were you dressed like? Were you wearing a low-cut shirt?" So, trying to to reframe the conversation from what the victim was doing to why were you engaging in this behavior that wasn't acceptable, I think, is a critical shift. Um, and I also think that we need to really um, invest in healthy relationships education nationally um statewide locally there are so many kids and young people who do not get proper information about not only just regular sex ed um but also about like how to have a healthy relationship with someone how to set a boundary and be able to tell somebody no and that that's okay um what consent looks like what boundary or like i said what um just, just all of that type of information, um, and studies have shown that folks who learn those types of things before they get to college tend to experience less um, sexual violence once they are there. It is too late to be having those conversations during freshman orientation. They need to start much earlier than they did. And the final thing I'll add is that I think we also, when we're thinking about what a violence-free future needs, we kind of forget that we should. Also be encouraging people to think about focusing on what joy they're getting out of the relationship, if they're getting any joy, if they're having fun with the person that they're with, or if they're feeling stressed and taken advantage of or mistreated in some way. Um, I think it's important to remind people that relationships, yes, they need to be respectful, they need to be healthy, but they should also be fun.
1: Well said. Jim? So
2: I believe that a violence-free future needs pathways to justice and healing like understanding that justice and healing look different for all survivors um so we need to be we need to be creating more options for folks um, I mean, just in terms of the the healing side, like right now is a really, it's like we are living through a collective trauma, like all of us are hurting, but survivors are hurting, like just thinking about the layers of trauma that they're, that they are enduring right now, um, and there's no right way to practice self-care, like some people are talking about like if you don't come out of this pandemic with like a project that you like something like no like right now people like there are so many people that are just trying to survive Um, so just recognizing that healing looks different for for everybody especially for all survivors Um, in terms of pathways to justice we too often rely on the criminal justice system the criminal justice system fails so many survivors every day Um, it it works for some people um, but it does fail so many people Um, and A lot of survivors don't wanna go to the criminal justice system. Maybe they don't want the person who harmed them to to be arrested or go to jail. Um, Or maybe they don't feel that the criminal justice system is there to support them. Um, So we need to provide alternative paths to justice, maybe like exploring restorative justice. And again, understanding that these different options are not, they're not a one size fit all for everybody. Um, I just wanted to plug two pieces of legislation that Safe Horizon is focused on. the Child Victim Act and the Adult Survivors Act. Um, So after a decade of advocacy, the New York State Legislature finally passed the Child Victim Act, the CVA last year. Um, And that changed the criminal and civil statute of limitations for child sexual abuse, like prospectively, so moving forward. But it also opened a one-year window that opened this past August that allows survivors of child sexual abuse who are otherwise time barred to pursue civil charges against the person who abused them and or negligent institutions to be able to do so. A lot of the cases that we've been seeing being filed are against like the Catholic Church, Boy Scouts of America. Um, And so now we're advocating for that one year window to be extended for at least an additional year, especially given what we're dealing with right now. Um, And we're advocating for the Adult Survivors Act, uh, which would open a similar one-year window for adult survivors of sexual abuse who are otherwise time-barred because the statute of limitations expired, uh, for them to be able to pursue civil charges against the person who assaulted them or or a negligent institution. Um, So that's just opening up an additional pathway towards justice for survivors who want to pursue things through the civil courts um, rather than through the criminal justice system.
1: I'm speechless. I, I really... Appreciate you guys coming on here. It just brings to mind something my mom actually told me a while back, which is that if if you can change even one life for the better uh, in this world, you've lived a worthy life. So I I really, really appreciate everything you guys do um, and just just fighting for justice every day and speaking out for victims and bringing to light things that are otherwise occluded. What you said about, you know, just the interpersonal relationships, the complexities of interpersonal relationships of maybe you don't want to implicate your abuser, like that in itself is a whole can of worms. But I I really appreciate early on in the conversation what Lorraine said, uh, which is empowering victims to empower other victims. And that kind of creates this, uh feedback loop of victims empowering other victims sharing their experiences and and bringing these things to light so i really really appreciate you all i'm i'm just definitely more enlightened now than i was uh before we started so thank you so much
4: thank you um i also wanted to just add something really quickly um in terms of this conversation of a, a future free of violence Um, I also think it's important to also make healing accessible to those who need it. Um, I know we all work at nonprofits where we provide free services to survivors, but in terms of, you know, counseling services, mental health treatment, um, and things of that nature, I think they need to be more accessible accessible and more affordable to a lot of these survivors, um, especially survivors that have low income, or especially now, a lot of them are not even able to work. Um, so I think that's very important as well. And also um, holding abusers accountable as well. Um, What we know is that a lot of the times, once the survivor sort of leaves the domestic violence relationship, they are the ones that have to, you know, change their entire life, leave their community, leave their home, leave their loved ones behind, while the abuser sort of gets to stay back and be in the community. So I think we also just need to continue that conversation on like Lisa said, like reframing that narrative and understanding why um, why sometimes survivors stay and you know holding holding them accountable, whether it's the community or whether it's your friends and your family like you can have these conversations also just on an individual individual and interpersonal level.
3: right, I'm so glad that you mentioned the funding piece because I think that that is so critical and I think. We need to not only have the actual funds, but we need to make sure that that is a priority that should be on everybody's agenda. Um, we should not have to be fighting every few years for of reauthorization. That shouldn't even be a conversation. It should just be something that we as a society have said is important in order to protect the safety of our own citizens. And it should just be something that it goes without saying.
0: Thank you all so much. And I wanted to kind of end this conversation uh, as we started with Jimmy. Um, uh, Jimmy, can you please um, give our audience uh, all of the details about the virtual rally for Denim Day NYC this year um, and how they can take the pledge?
2: Yes. Um, So we are encouraging folks to go to our website, denimday.nyc. Um, the first thing you'll see is take the 2020 pledge, um, and that's way for that's your way of committing to um, to committing to our campaign and committing to creating a future free of of sexual violence and other interconnected forms of violence. Uh, so go to our website denimdata.nyc and take the pledge. Um, part of the pledge, they're going to ask you to to tell us uh, what does uh, what does a violence free future need. What do we need to create that future? Um, and and that way we can also um, use your responses to post on our social media um, and grow this campaign more and more and more. Um, but folks are also invited to uh, go on Instagram, go on Facebook, go on Twitter, um, use our hashtag, hashtag violencefreefutureneeds um, and tag us, tag at DenimDayNYC um, so that we can, um, we can uplift your responses um, as part of our campaign. Um, and then on April 29th, on Denim Day. We're going to be launching our virtual rally where we're going to have all of the different videos that all of you have created telling us how to create that future. Um, and it's all going to be on our website.
0: Thank you all so much. I mean, you're just you're all such an inspiration to us. We're really grateful for the work that you're doing, and we're definitely going to connect our audience with all of the all of your organization's websites. Um, thank you so much for your time and we look forward to spending this denim day together apart, together. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you
1: guys so much yeah. for being on the show. Thank you so much for having us.
0: For those who are interested in supporting Denim Day NYC this year, it's April 29th. Uh, we're having a virtual rally. So you can literally visit the website uh, denimday.nyc and you'll be able to see videos and they'll have programming all day which raises awareness for the fight to end sexual and domestic violence in our country. Um, additionally, you can take the pledge by visiting their website. And it's the first link that pops up is the pledge that you can take for a violence-free future and what, that, what a violence-free future needs. We're so grateful that we have these amazing guests uh, here to share this knowledge with our audience today. And we look forward to bringing you more programming for Sexual Assault Awareness Month and Denim Day that's thought-provoking and challenges you to make a difference.
1: Please make sure to check out our episode notes for additional resources, hotline numbers, and ways in which you can take action in this fight to end sexual violence.